Hey everyone, welcome back to the Red Mage Podcast. It's I, Joshua, in the Red Mage. So I want to start off this episode by kind of getting back into a refresher of why I call myself the Red Mage. Um, and I, I thought about this, and I may have addressed it in one of the establishing episodes, I believe, episode zero or episode one. But for new listeners or listeners that are kind of just coming back after his hiatus and be like, what's a Red Mage again? A red mage is a homage to Final Fantasy in addressing or donning this kind of like class role that is a generalist um, that is able to access all types of armor, spells, and and, uh, weapons, but at the cost of not being able to, to kind of be a master in any one particular field. As a designer or a human experience designer, We really work with interdisciplinary teams um, and we focus on the strengths of each team member. So as a red mage, I'm kind of this, I'm more of a researcher in the sense that I still build and I still make stuff and I design things and I have all those Adobe skills. I can make animations and so forth, design booklets and whatsoever, but I really love the research of it. And as a team member, where my strength comes in is being able to see what is being is kind of like the the main issue, jumping in there with um, an open mind and complementing my team members uh, by providing a series of data, strengths, uh, data, research, uh, journals and information to help kind of define the the area that we should be operating in. And then from that, be able to kind of develop a comprehensive strategy um, in creating an outreach um, strategy, uh, distribution plan, and so forth um, within the means that addresses our user segments. So as a Red Mage, I'm kind of like dabbling in a a bunch of stuff. Like I'll dabble in looking and researching in, um, you know, for example, games games and their impact on mental health. But by no means am I a psychologist or a counselor, and I don't try to label myself as such. But as a designer, I look at problems that are occurring in that area and how we can provide, you know, something of a, a benefit to design for a system, a platform, a service um, that will help practitioners in that area address people that are looking for help. Um, and getting affordable um, health, like health insurance, or maybe even finding other ways if they can't afford that, to maybe even use games as a form of therapy, and how to kind of look at exercises in that. And so I'll work with psycho- psychologists, or I'll work with um, people that are counselors to do so, and that kind of applies to any field. So, one, I design games. Two, I research and a lot <laughs> uh, through participating in field activities, remote research, SWOT analysis, and the list goes on. And lastly, I build virtual worlds. So what that means is I can I can build a tabletop or I can create a tabletop game, but I could also go into Unity, Unreal, or even Blender, and I'm starting to learn Rhino, to make all these virtual assets, build them out, and then kind of have them address this larger this become a part of this larger system and address core needs of user segments in that industry. So 
a red mage in Final Fantasy is kind of helping kind of um, back up any areas that would the team would be lacking in order to be able to prog or overcome certain feats. So if you have a very tanky class um, or a party that has a lot of like tanks or people that soak up damage and control space, but you have no one to heal and keep those tanks up like a healer, or you have no one to actually do damage and, 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 and deal out um, magic or physical damage to destroy monsters, a red mage would be really good for that. Um, and their evolution in some of the older Final Fantasy series becomes a red knight or a red magician um, in which they actually have sometimes access to much more powerful or unique spells. And in Final Fantasy XIV, they have a system called dual cast in which after they cast a short spell, they can go ahead and cast any spell immediately after, which would save up a lot of time and energy. Um, and those spells are usually a lot more potent. And while they're still a little weaker than some of the other classes, they're really good for progs and in kind of doing research in that field, which is really funny. Um, because that's the reason I, I call myself the Red Mage. And as a designer, um, that allows me to kind of compensate in areas where teams are having you know struggles. And, and let's say they have, like an engineer has something built out, but they don't know where to kind of put that in the field. That engineer could probably be seen as a DPS taking on some very large challenge, but if they don't have a place to place that, they're going to get wiped out to the next boss monster or they're not going to be able to kind of move forward with their, with their plan. In that case, I could come in and reverse engineer our design process because we already have a deliver. Then it's about really kind of uh, doing a discovery to see where this would be good, a define to see how this could connect to a larger system, and then a delivery um, or a develop in which we could start kind of making like, you know, this this kind of like series of like distribution plans and the deliver to finally like push those out in real time. Um, so with that in mind, I donned this title of the Red Mage um, proudly because design is a very versatile, very powerful and very useful aspect that is malleable and it acts as a service. Um, although in a design book called Design Management, I also see how it acts as a partnership. But when you come to come down to it, a partner really is someone that is working with someone in order to help extract the highest potential value out of something. Whether that be efficiency, whether that be um, the, the, the stronger value proposition, whether or, or so forth. So... As a red mage, I'm out here tackling these, these very large problems. And my perspective on the world is, I see it kind of an RPG. And we're all kind of playing to our strengths. And I see these very huge problems in society, such as inclusion, accessibility, um, you know, access to things like mental health services, access to, um, you know, Micropreneurs access to certain resources and supplies to help launch your business and and so forth. Um, and even issues of sustainability as these giant monsters that are out there in the world that need to be taken down. And that to me really is no different than a raid group coming together of people playing to their favorite class um, that are passionate about that class and are working to the best of their ability that are optimized to take on the, these large monsters. 
Um, so that's why I call my red ma- myself the Red Mage. That's what this podcast is about. And world building is my methodology of choice. I kind of pair it with things like pragmatism or imagism or, or um, soft systems, which is uh, a design version of phenomenology to address these things and methods uh, that are acclimated to whatever the needs of the business organization or um, the target audience segment is given like and taking into accountability time, resources, technology, and how we could work forward in an iterative process that is inclusive and accessible and works with an interdisciplinary team and involves a community. So with my with sorry, with my spiel out of the way, um, I want to get into uh, giving one shout out today. And because I also see it as very important that as a designer, I help promote and recognize other organizations that are doing social good and that are making a difference and are being creative and that are very interesting in the way that they're addressing certain things. And today I would like to give a shout out to Eastposure. Um, Eastposure is this great group that looks at um, esports for education, entertainment, and e-collaboration. And it's, it uses uh, education to entertain within a propriety E2E uh, ecosystem. And their principles are really learning about technology, management, marketing, production, and competition. And I've had the pleasure of talking to uh, Danny Martin, who is, um, I believe, the head of Exposure. Guy is brilliant. Guy is inclusive and has a very, very tight and strong comprehension of, of esports business and he's using it to help kind of launch the careers of marrying micro entrepreneurs um, in communities that are looking to kind of create a career in esports. So I would check them out at esposure.gg. Um, and they're definitely a place that, you know, is really kind of like the cutting edge ecosystem and it's fun. And in being a willing participant in this, you know, it's might be something that you'd be into. Um, they have a series of news and article events on their site, and you could go ahead and check those out. So now let's get into um, today's main episode of Discoveries in Quarkspace. I know everyone's kind of like, why are you just giving these spiels and then coming back to Quarkspace? Well, I gave these spiels because they're important and they kind of jump into this ecosystem and really what I'm about. But enough of that. Quarkspace is a currently at its MVP level. It is using Mozilla Hubs to host these virtual worlds in which users can kind of go in and like in D&D, be guided on a quest that educates them on on what a uh, value proposition is and gets them to start thinking about how to use that in their everyday lives to launch their cosplay or cosplay newer businesses. So in that, I've conducted a series of playtests. I conducted ethnographic interviews. I've gone out and um, I've done photo shoots. I've cosplayed once, uh, which I, I really hope to continue on doing because it it's really fun. And it's a really great way to kind of like meet and connect with people over this, uh, this fandom. And it's such a strong and powerful and united community. Although it does have some of its problems, um, you know, everywhere, any anything does. Um, 
it's a good opportunity for us to also kind of like address how we would moderate that in later iterations. In this iteration of Quarkspace, you know, not all of that has been addressed due to the time and resource uh, limitation of resources. And moving forward, um, I've gotten great feedback on how to kind of like add some areas of moderation and um, add some filters and kind of regulate certain things. And part of that is community moderation. But before I get into that any further, let's go over some of the big discoveries that Quarkspace revealed about users who are cosplayers, which are cosplayers um, looking to transition from hobbyist to professional. So the first big question is like, why does this matter? You know, what if you're, what if you're someone that's listening in on this is like, oh, I'm not a cosplayer. Um, I'm, I'm not part of this community. I'm not really, I don't, I'm a, I'm a very big skeptic, not a denier, but a skeptic. And a skeptic is someone that is someone that wants to have some facts and some information in order to make a, a judgment and they have an open mind and are willing to change their view if there's sufficient evidence there. And that's completely understandable. And I, I welcome skeptics because skeptics bring in a lot of good criticism that helps strengthen or address certain weaknesses in the system. So let's go over some of the ethnographic interviews first. Um, there is one in particular that I really love. Um, and this came out of, um, I'm not going to say, out, out of an ethnographic interview in um, Buena Park. And it goes... We all put on a costume every day. You're wearing this costume right now and portraying yourself as something just like I am. Depending on what I wear and how I wear it, it's inviting people to see me or express in that way. It changes our perception about someone. I think cosplayers, and I inserted cosplayers here, should start looking at other avenues and show other ways that they can help a business uh, and expand who they are for their skill sets. And it makes cosplayers that much more viable to an employer. So we see that we kind of are, you know, it brings up the, the, the topic that we are kind of role-playing every day. Like, even in this podcast, I'm taking on a persona of a red mage. I'm taking on that persona that I am a designer coming in here and looking at ways that I could use games as critical technologies to address these very big issues that are kind of running rampant. When I go to the grocery store, I'm not putting on that persona. I'm kind of this very quiet person that kind of likes to keep to themselves and I'm just there to grab my groceries, maybe uh, treat myself to some kombucha and then pick up some uh, some video games on, you know, um, through the Steam store or consider what I'm doing like, ver you know, like for my phone and so forth. Um, and then when I go to school, or when I, when I was going to school, I would put on a completely different persona too. I would be Josh the student that is there to kind of learn, uh, break, the, break the system and challenge things. And that is kind of these like different aspects of myself that I'm kind of portraying at a given time in a given situation in the way that I wear. And, you know, sometimes what I wear to go grocery shopping isn't really what I wear to go to school. Like, when I go grocery shopping, I'm kind of like just, all right, just slap on some jeans, shirt, and a, and a, and a beanie because I don't want to style my hair. But when I go to school, like I like, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be doing ethnographic interviews. I'm going to be 
talking to people and I'm going to need to be social. And so I'll wear, I'll wear things that like, you know, pins that strike up conversation with people where the people will be able to identify as an affordance on me to say that, Hey, he's a part of our like kind of gamer or anime community or this design community. You know, we, we have something in common. We want to compliment or we want to talk to him and engage or, um, you know, the fact that I wear a backpack to school, but not when necessarily when I go out grocery shopping is, is kind of frames me in a different light. And then too, at the same time, when, when I'm in a business, you know, I, I am a avid lover of my kicks. I love collecting sneakers. I love, you know, my beanies and I, and I love everything mostly because like, well, for my beanies, cause like I have I'm too lazy to do my hair and in COVID I've just been kind of growing it out. Um, not because I think that um, getting a haircut is bad, but the increased risk of exposure. And it's not to say that I'm going to catch the exposure over at a hairstylist. Um, I was concerned about that, but I actually looked at what hairstylists do in practice and just every day pre-COVID and how it's become a little bit more advanced and the stringent rules on cleanliness are extreme. And there's also been a CDC report on um, these two people kind of one who were uh, barb who were I'm trying to find the correct one, um, but they were basically running their barbershop. They would go in and they would see customers and they had masks on, and there were zero reports of COVID. One actually caught COVID when returning home and taking off their mask for someone else had exposure. And, you know, they came back in. But, you know, I'm, I'm saying this, and I'm leaving the judgment up to you guys. Like, I'm kind of impartial. I kind of want to grow out my hair, too, to kind of donate um, to cancer patients. And I know, like, as a, as a 29, 30-year-old dude that's kind of doing this, it, it might seem kind of like meh, but I, my, my father, my stepfather passed from uh, cancer. And so that's something that has resonated with me. And this is kind of like a little bit that I can do just as a person, not even as a designer to kind of give back. And part of why I want to kind of like blast through these episodes for Quarkspace is because I start wanting to addressing problems like that as well. Um, you know, I, there's so many ideas that I have that I want to go over, but, you know, let's get back to, to Quarkspace. And I have the problem of running on these tangents. But um, kind of going into that, like, you know, there's there's been all of this, this stuff into how we kind of create these personas and how we create these, these impressions of ourselves at given times. So that that interview was really insightful about that. And in a sense, while, while cosplay is only done as a form of play in these given circles, it's how we interpret it when we're like consuming it outside of that through videos, through streams and so forth that, you know, what if, you know, if, if, we, if we simply stay that cosplay is just a, a hobby, then that's immediately kind of overturned by the cost and by the pursuit of so many to turn this into a career as some have and are making six figures out of. 
Now, to kind of get an idea of what um, what cosplay cost, there was a really great um, series of information on Anthony Thomas uh, marketing. And it broke down like the cost of that. So 70% of cosplayers, uh, and this report is from 2018, it might have gone up or we're down, um, but it's really difficult to kind of get that in large quantities. So Anthony Thomas uh, Marketing has been the resource that I've used for this. 70% um, of cosplayers spend an average of 100 to 600 on each costume they make, with advanced costumes costing 1,000. 32.1% of cosplayers make three to four different costumes a year, and 64% of cosplayers attend three or more fan events a year. So if you're attending, if you're creating just three to four different costumes, that's a lot of money that's going into that event. And if you're, if you're attending three or more of these conventions, we also have to think of the, the regional impact that's going to have. So assuming that, let's, let's assume that they're local conventions. Let's assume that I'm, I'm someone here um, in LA attending uh, Anime Expo. Anime Expo has made over a million dollars in the course of like, what is it, four days. And that is insane. And they're, they're, they're having a system that is addressing, uh, and this is taken from Anime Expo, I believe this was in 2019, um, pre-COVID. And they had a system where they're streaming live events or streaming panels and they're reaching over like 78 countries. That's huge. And to make a million dollars in just regional impact, and that's broken down into like local restaurants, um, was it local ex um, expenditures, uh, direct spending, um, hotels and booking, and then just e even the food trucks now. If you've ever gone to Anime Expo or any exposition whatsoever, you know that food and hydration are really important. Mm -hmm. You're walking out there in a costume that is like making you like 30 degrees hotter. That's I know it may be exaggeration, but it people get dehydrated out there. And then, you know, you're walking around a day and you're maybe you're not from the immediate area. And even if you are, you're not at home. You're probably at a hotel because it's closer to the convention. And it's part of that experience. And then you're you're kind of like you've gone out everywhere. The convention itself may not have the most appealing food, and you want to try something local fare or something that's unique. You're having an experience out here. And so you go to these food trucks, and you're in these long lines. You're out in the sun, and, like, you know, these these food truck people are to the best of their ability pumping out um, amazing meals <laughs> to serve hundreds of thousands of people that are attending this convention. And then um, there's also kind of like local foods, like a lot of people I've seen I've seen when I've gone out um, for field activities, uh, when I went to AX and I also went to Sableton Con, we'll go to the immediate area. Like in AX, we saw I saw a lot of people in cosplay hitting up Denny's. And it's really funny because you it's such a surreal experience. Like you're there and then you're ordering like some pancakes and then you're sitting next to like Kurosaki Ichigo or you're sitting next to um, some character from Fruits Basket 
where you're sitting next to this um, Naruto character and you're just kind of like all kind of sitting down having breakfast and it's it's like it's it's not weird it's like really really cool in which you get to experience that and that's a part of the convention that kind of leaks out and you know cosplayers recognize that they're not in their state of play but they don't switch from cosplay because like that takes a lot of time to get the makeup mask um you know apparel and uh wigs all set up so they actually kind of take this break and when you, part of the etiquette is that when you see them eating like you kind of let them be and, and have their space because it's tiring that to go from photo to photo and sometimes you just want to have a good meal but it becomes part of this ecosystem and then because cost those things are resources that are directly around the area of cosplayers you know they start making money too and because a con's going over four days and people were and cosplayers and attendees are there from like early morning to late at night <laughs> going to some of the the uh the r-rated panels or attending the raves like it's it's quite an experience and those those businesses that serve food or um offer certain services or certain like um amenities and in uh avenues for entertainment are making constant money and there's a surge of people that come in over over that weekend or over that that period of time that really contribute to the local economy so um i mentioned in, in episode seven this uh san diego comic-con and the regional impact it had of 149 billion dollars and it was, it's or uh, 149 million um let me, let me check my notes real quick to get that uh, exact figure so I'm not overstating or understating. You know what? Correction on that. It is $149 million over the course of four days. So correction to episode eight, uh, episode seven, um, $149 million. It's That's still a lot of money for over four days. You know, and an $88 million uh, is direct attendance and spending, three million of hotels on uh, tax revenue, 64,000 for room night stays, um, and then there's only 135 in attendance. And this graphic came from um, visitsandiego.com. Um, during episodes, episode seven, I didn't have the graphic on me, so, you know, shame on me, um, but I wanted to correct those figures real quick. And when we, when we look at that in the system that it has in region, Regionally, people have to book flights to come over here. People are going to have to reserve hotel spaces. Um, there are artists that are paying for for booths and spaces in the in the con. Um, there are movie theaters for people that are kind of just like waiting in between things. Um, there's um, a lot of local companies like Jungle here in uh, Los Angeles that sells a bunch of anime products that come and attend these cons. And they make a lot of money on there. And they sell things that are kind of limited for that convention time only. So there's a lot of incentive for collectors to to jump on that. Um, and then it's a great space for photographers, too, to kind of come in and network and, you know, make these um, connections. Because cosplay photography has actually gone up quite rapidly where these professional cosplays, um, these professional photo studios have services for cosplay photography um they're jumbled around here somewhere in my notes but i will if i run into them i will make sure to to give the names of some of those studios um but it's 
it's really surprising. So now I want to jump into another ethnographic interview um, that I hold. And this, this quote was, was really, really hit on the punishing economic impact that people trying to pursue a full-time career in cosplay have hit. Um, pursuing a job as a full-time cosplayer, the hard thing is getting paid to go to locations, finding people who want services, who think you have a name big enough to ask you for your services. I think it's really hard for people to do that. I switched to marketing management. I do cosplay on my spare time uh, and do competitions. So that's how I make money. So, you know, when we when we look at that, it's kind of like, yeah, how do you have a, a name big enough? What's the value proposition that you're offering? Who are your key target audience? And I want to connect this directly to uh, a discovery I, I made in Quarkspace. In Quarkspace, the um, intro intro game is basically kind of this like test to, to see how to expose people. And it's very bare minimal. So I get more input from the community. And it's a it's an educational RPG styled after Dungeons and Dragons in which you go into this virtual world. Um, you you kind of explore these areas. You have a quest and you can address it in the way that you want. While it's still kind of like lacking in certain areas like a battle system, friendship system, and so forth, those are being worked into the next iteration of where Corp Space is going. And I'll get to that later in the episode. So in this in this test play, you have the opportunity uh, to negotiate for much higher pay. The base pay being $8 an hour. When I talked to when one of the players that was that was test playing it said, I'm just gonna keep with the eight, just just hire me. So I wanted to follow up on that afterwards and I asked this player, you know, what what's make what made you want to just stay for the eight? Why didn't you use like the negotiation tactics that you were exposed to? Why didn't you make a value proposition? And he said he's like, Well, I considered it, but you know, as as a as a player like in the foreign world and I have nothing, I I wanna be safe. It's a safe choice to take $8 an hour over nothing. It's a safe choice, you know, to kind of just take that. And you're like, so I just stuck with $8 an hour. And, you know, taking consideration, this is a world which mirrors our own, but it's a fantastic, you know, realm. And it's a game in which you have unlimited possibilities to do anything and address things in the way you'd like. And you can take these risks with, with a, without physically or emotionally, or maybe not emotionally, but um, physically affecting your, your financial status in the real world. And for them to have such hesitance to do that, pointed out that there's a behavioral issue that needed to change. And that issue is, what are you worth? And how do you communicate what you're worth? And how do you make sure that you have a higher potential of being able to secure that? And there's an article called The Punishing Economic of Cosplay um, that really kind of shed some light on this. Um, as I pull this up, I remember like the, the cosplay, I believe it's from Kotaku.com, um, in which one cosplayer has had you know over 50,000 followers, has huge success, um, creates these custom cosplays, but still has trouble getting... Um, all of this uh, 
any any recognition or any co financial compensation. And it it becomes a question. It's like, well, why is this? And in episode seven, we over we went over the idea that cosplay as a field or as kind of this hobby is inundated with people. There's like hundreds of thousands of people out there that cosplay as a hobby, cosplay as, you know, like, you know, just to kind of like try it out with some friends, or they're really into this kind of breakdown of going into like a full-time career. And these are the three user segments that I identified through this. And I call them as such, I call them the, um, the fan, the hobbyist, and the cosplayer. The fan is someone that like really kind of enjoys looking at cosplayers, has friends that are cosplayers, doesn't really care to cosplay they, themselves. They might, you know, do that on like, you know, like an event like Halloween or something, but they're more just about like, um, you know, like the fandom of it. And they may have a favorite cosplayer that they follow and they um, are like into the same series as them, but that's kind of where it stops in terms of them cosplaying. The hobbyist is someone that enjoys cosplay as a form of recreation or escapism um, and will attend these conventions, be a part of the fandom, but really is just kind of cosplaying like for, for the sake of cosplaying. They're, they're not looking to create a career out of it. The cosplayer, on the other hand, is someone that has invested so much time into cosplay that they develop professional skills such as like high-end sewing, LED, um, you know, wig styling, makeup, special effects, um, and that they're looking to create or use cosplay as a vehicle for either a full-time career or falling into a career that they really love that involves something creative or uh, that involves cosplay in some way. And in that, it becomes difficult to kind of, as a business, if I'm outside, and I had this conversation with one of my mentors who, who brought some really good insight on this. It's, if you're a business and you're looking to hire a cosplayer, how do you differentiate who is who? You know, one of the things is like, okay, they have this many thousand followers, they have a million. Okay, they're making their own costumes. But then what if there's like a rising star and that they would be really good to kind of collaborate with, but you don't know. So then how does a cosplayer make a value proposition in order to address them, appeal to this, this segment? Because from a cosplayer standpoint, the, these businesses that would be purchasing your cosplayer, hiring you to be a promotional or a content creator for them, they, they're, they need to have a value proposition that aligns with their business objectives. And you existing in this world, which is inundated with thousands of peers that are doing the same, how do you stand out? What are you bringing to the table? You know, what are you operating on that is addressing business goals and bringing down a value proposition that's going to lead to measurable results such as uh, increased conversion rates, higher attendance, um, you know, um, great, you know, like purchasing of their systems or engaging in building of their community. Or the list goes on, depending on the value proposition that aligns with what you're doing and aligns to those, to those key target audiences. And one of the things with cosplay is that a lot of different cosplayers want to do different things with their cosplay. 
Um, some are very focused on, you know, being a content creator. Some very much love and enjoy the concept of being an, an entrepreneur and selling stuff. Others enjoy teaching. But, you know, there are so many cosplay um, tutorials out there that exist. And when you're, when you're talking about cosplay teaching, you know, for me, what, what is the value proposition of learning from your specific platform and paying you through Patreon or supporting you through Patreon to gain access to this in comparison to kind of going out? And this is just like a general statement I'm making. I know some, some individuals have this fully figured out and it's, it's not kind of like doing this. This is just for sake of example. So in that same time, what if you're, you know, a cosplayer that wants to focus on, you know, selling costumes? What is the value proposition that you're going to make that goes against someone that's just, you know, pumping out something that's like super fast? You know, what if it, what if someone's like just obstinate about their, what they're paying for it? How do you, how do you change that, that consumer behavior? How do you bring them into your narrative? And that's possible. Marketing and branders have been doing it for, for years. Cosplay just hasn't been explored in that in that regard, in that sense. So, you know, these are some some pretty loaded questions. And how do you as a as a game designer address something that is kind of like, you know, sporadic to all that? And so the start of that was really kind of breaking down the user segments. So Quarkspace was really looking at cosplayers. People that are cosplayers that are wanting to transition from um, realm of hobbyism to a full-time profession and really a step and allow them the tools and the space and trial and error to kind of learn and establish their own business. And you may be thinking, okay, well, why a game? You know, why not some some boring educational Coursera class or why not like uh, an entire just like single workshop? Well, first off, in a workshop, you're not going to get everything that you need. This is a, a very, very large and robust problem. So a single workshop won't do that. And the cost to put on workshop after workshop, that's going to be pretty expensive to some cosplayers. And cosplayers who are faced with, with economic turmoil or a strict economic finance or financial situation may not be able to afford that. The second one is, as someone that has gone through like online class in the time of corona i am sick of zoom i am so fatigued of like all this burnout and in recent days people have been trying to work on on ways to make zoom more fun and interactive but it hasn't addressed the fact that zoom is still a 2d medium and it's very like the video itself lacks interactivity you can host a concert on there you can do a lot of things with it. Um, and I know that there's been a game released on Zoom that you can kind of play around and even level up. But I'm I'm kind of of the mind that we're in, the, in a day and age where we have WebXR, we have VR, we have AR. Why the hell are we not looking into technologies like that and investing into technologies like that? Things that are defining the future of us, making these ex technologies more accessible. And I could go into Unity right now, whip something up in AR or VR, and or even WebXR, and distribute that. 
And there's costs associated with all these. There's accessibility issues associated with all these. But one of the things I also found is that like in, in looking at this, Zoom is the safe, is just like the safe game. Zoom is something that has been around for so long that people have kind of pitched it. And I think personally, after having tested Zoom, Discord, Caffeine, Twitch, that Discord is a much more powerful medium than Zoom. And I would rather use that for business. Um, and that's, again, my my personal input. You can, you can find some more data and you could test them out yourselves, but I'm going from a phenomenological standpoint and having used this and having been a student and having been burnt out and having looked at stuff like Yale News, National Discovery um, articles in which they talk about plasticity of the mind, how it's not really meant for us, and the fatigue that comes out of this. And I think that there's a stronger potential of going into a virtual world, like World of Warcraft, and hosting these meetings. It's fun, it's interactive, you could see people, you could move around, or even just making something like that. And so after having endured that and looked into that a little bit, that's why I wanted to make Quarkspace in WebXR. So one of the reasons it's, I chose WebXR was because of its accessibility. You can you can access this on a phone, you can access it on a laptop, you can make it potentially cross-platform. And to do that, because of time restrictions, I use Mozilla Hubs. And I love Mozilla Hubs 100%. It's cross-platform, it's cross-compatible, you could use it on the phone, you could build stuff out in Blender or whatever um, 3D program of your choice and pump it out. And because it's low poly, it, it really kind of optimizes for like a user experience without kind of taking away from any like, you know, core needs. So in that, I also chose a game because of levels interactivity, the potential for games to change behavior and the ability for complete autonomy. In For the Win, um, a great book, it talks about the, the four Fs. And these aren't profane words. The four, the, wait, <laughs> the, three, the three Fs, not four. Fun, friendship, and feedback. So friends is kind of like the social aspect of this. And this is also supported by Jane McGonigal's broken, uh, Reality is Broken, um, in which we like to sometimes be alone together. Sometimes we like to work in groups. Sometimes we like to just coexist in the space and kind of do our own things and have the potential chance meetup to kind of come together. But, folk, but building off D&D, I use that social aspect like D&D does, where you're kind of coming into this curated group, designating a time and space, and then kind of going on this quest that establishes and exposes you to concepts and scales you. And because you have full autonomy to go about things in the way that you want and kind of test things out, for better or for worse, you get positive or negative feedback based on the way that you do stuff. And while Quarkspace is still kind of working certain things out, um, later iterations um, hope to kind of address this. So there's a, a very strong potential for games to do this. And games have been used by the military, they've been used by Coca-Cola, they've been used by Domino's, they've been used by all sorts of things. 
um, and companies and businesses to build communities, get people engaged, uh, educate people. And I also want to address the two differences here, like gamification and game-based learning. Gamification is applying game-like elements to a system that isn't necessarily a game or has any context of, of a game. Game-based learning is just using a game um, to teach people. And I went with game-based learning because there is there hasn't been a, a platform already that that is doing this that would work in the immediate work with me while I was a grad student. So I was looking at kind of like building out like a prototype, and that really brought a lot of insight um, to about business, about um, really a learning experience design, and making something that's comprehensive, scalable, and marketable. Um, the there's been kind of recent controversy too about like the use of game-based learning and gamification and they call it there's a, a new term that's coming out like i believe uh, carl kaplan um and a couple others have been kind of pitching it um and I, i'm blanking on the sense right now i i had the article saved somewhere but I'm, I'm leaving it out but it all kind of comes down to the same thing what whatever that forgotten term i i, I said it was um is like I think it's like game learning or something. It's or uh, yeah, something like that. Um, let me check his uh, LinkedIn profile real quick to get the exact words because Carl Kaplan has a lot of great insight on gamification, game-based learning, and he is a he's like a leader in kind of everything that's going on. But I do disagree with him on the use of this terminology, and the terminology is game thinking. So. The main point of that was in changing in changing this this terminology, and and please keep in mind he's he's a professor at Bloomsburg University. He's written books. He's an incredibly intelligent man, and has had a series of successes in this. But the reason I don't support this is because they're the same concept. It's just people have been using gamification and solely focusing on points, badges, and, and very superficial items that do not address the, the core elements of what gamification is supposed to do in building intrinsic motivation through fun. And game thinking really is an attempt to kind of like transition people to change the way that they think about gamification to address that. But it's the same thing. And I've, I've actually gotten a, a small conversation in with uh, Yokai Cho, um, another, another forefront leader in, in gamification, um, who works with the Italysis framework. Um, the framework I, I've, I use is a little different because it works better with um, the kind of like research method that I use. But it comes down to everything just being if you're a good player, and if you're using gamification or any of these tools in the right way. I think the way he put it was, if you go into WoW and you continue to wipe and cause problems for your team, that means that there are things that you need to change in the way that you're addressing stuff. And it doesn't mean that WoW is a bad game. It means that you're still like a very like novice or inexperienced player, and you can fix that by changing stuff and kind of like learning the mechanics of the game 
and breaking down, you know, your class and roles and attributes. And it was, it was really, really good insight. And please know, like, I'm not trying to like, you know, burn Carl, Carl Cap or anything. I actually have a lot of respect for him and I really loved his book. Um, and he really is a gamification guru, but you know, in terms of all these terminology and all these buzzwords, it kind of comes down to this in business. Like if you, if you use a buzzword in business, it's kind of trending for a while and then it changes to something else and it kind of goes through that. So I'm sticking to gamification and game-based learning, but ultimately I'm, I'm a game designer. So I make games and I use them as critical technologies to address these larger issues. So to me, these terminology aren't so like, they're, they're a little bit superficial to me. What really matters to me is, are we able to get to the core of building an intrinsic motivation, um, allowing for mastery, allowing for autonomy and allowing for like willing participation and a desire to be able to uplift oneself and really immerse oneself in that. And games have that potential. Um, so some of the literature that I went on this um, to kind of establish myself in, in the world of cosplay and the world of games um, were the following. For the win, uh, Gamification by uh, Bornbach, um, Planet, uh, Cosplay Planet, um, Watch Me Play, uh, let's see what else I got in here. I'm going through my, my Kindle library and there's there's so much. Um, it's Planet Cosplay, sorry. Um, woke Gaming, Ethnography and Virtual Worlds um, by Tom Bellensdorf. I may be butchering his last name, but he also made a Coming of Age and Second Life. And that book is, is phenomenal. I love it. Um, you see, The Cold Board Guide to World Building, um, Timi Timothy Hexen, which he goes on by the name Hello Future Me on YouTube. He is awesome. And I love his book on writing and world building. Um, let's see. The Writer's Spellbook, um, Homo Ludens, of course, um, Man Playing Games, and Cosplay Basics. So... All of these, and there's like a lot more that, like in articles, publications, scholarly journals, interviews, <laughs> list, list is going on and on and on, um, and and books that I've I've also read or kind of like taken snippets of due to time, um, like uh, world building and fantasy fans uh, and author and authors or for fantasy fan and authors, um, let's see games user research and a couple other other books like but I've, I've only kind of dabbled in some of those the core literature that i named off the, the beginning were books that i finished and really kind of implemented to help kind of establish myself i also looked at critical play uh that book i got through most of it it's a it's a very thick uh book from mit i also looked at carl kaplan's book um that that was a another Another really good book that put in perspective a lot of the, um, trying to double check on the, the title here. Um, sorry, again, I have so many books in here. 
uh, that it's it's almost like painful um, to kind of to kind of get through. Um, but I also read Carl, parts of Carl Kaplan's book. Um, got through about three three fourths of it. Uh, it was just like the ending that I, I needed to finish up. But there was just so much and so many books and so many uh, articles um, from ResearchGate um, that I that I also got off CSULB um, that I got from MIT Press, um, and it was it's it's crazy. And there's still so much more, and I still am open to learning so much more about these games as critical technologies. But going back to the to this um, concept of why to use games is because there's also until recently have been kind of like shunned down, even though historically they've been used for so many cultural and so many um, behavioral adaptations and changes in education. Um, and as, as a designer, I want to be a part of that kind of lineage that is contributing to this. And it's really humbling and really, really amazing to be a part of it. And also really great to, to kind of help carry on like this work and be a part of this, this community that's looking at games as a critical technology. So Quarkspace 2, um, has had a series of successes and failures. So I wanna go over some of the failures first before I go over some of the successes. So one of the biggest failures is that there is no battle system yet. And I took a moment to pause because everyone's like, how do you how do you have a D&D game without a battle system? And that's a really great question because in D&D, the battle system is based off of you know, a series of chants, the rolling dice. And in negotiations, I didn't want to emphasize that this is just a series of chants. This is a, a strategy and tactic-based base game that you're playing in which you were using tools to increase the potential and have higher possibilities of success. And unlike a dice roll, it's like if you go in there with a really great strategy and you have your, you know, your pitch deck, if you're making it about the business's needs, about your customer's needs and addressing core issues and have a strong value proposition, have your branding, have your marketing, everything down into the T, you're going to be able to, to kind of come in strong. And if you could most importantly address the big, so what? that inhibits so many businesses or so many entrepreneurs from being able to move forward with contracts, partnerships, and so forth. That's kind of important. But the question is, you know, how, how would I go about that? And after getting user feedback, the answer was kind of simple. But without that initial failure, I wouldn't have been able to kind of get that. And the reason I was also hesitant to put in just like a, a battle system is because I wasn't sure what people would if people would like this this strategy this um this kind of tax money game or this style and I wanted to get feedback on that in case I needed to adjust and what I learned from the GDC is if you make like a low fidelity prototype if you work low poly you can always build up and you could move faster that way and because in our design program 
we move in an iterative process to iterate forward, it's a it's a great way to be able to just kind of rapidly do this. Um, so with that, what I found out to be to be the best way is to make quizzes a battle system. Now everyone's feeling like, oh yeah, you could just do a quiz and it's like a pop quiz where you do multiple choice and you're done. And I'm looking at ways now to kind of go above and beyond that. What if your pop quiz was you actually like in Final Fantasy or World of Warcraft had a series of spells that you unlocked that you can blow up, um, you know, opposition that is trying to devalue you. It's currently in the works. Um, <laughs> no, don't know if it's 100% going to work, um, but that is something that we're look I'm looking forward into building into the next iteration. And again, I'll be looking at getting user input. The next thing was um, the world building. Oh, I got railed on here so bad for this. But because I got railed on so hard for this, it was such, such, such a great learning experience. That is making the next iteration so much stronger. So while people loved the characters and wanted to date them, there was commentary in the worlds that, you know, they felt very kind of like incomplete. And one of the, the reasons for that is that in hubs, you can't make a gigantic map and have people go through there because it takes up so many resources. And before you say that's a bad thing, the good thing is in breaking up these work, these levels into like little like little areas or sections that you transition from, it allows people to be able to play on their phone. And what I found through research was that not everyone has access to internet or even just reliable internet. And more and more people that are having financial struggles are relying on their phones as primary devices for being able to get on the web, um, do homework, attend class, and so forth. And from a phenomenological standpoint in running a D&D game, I've had a couple people who were students that had to kind of go back and back home where they had no reliable internet and they struggled to get online. And it was difficult because they were on their phone and they couldn't see like the map on World 20 and, and all this. And, you know, it just took up too many resources or they lagged or there was all this like connection problem. And so that was that was a great alternative to that. So looking into keeping the accessibility but expanding the world and also making it more that world more kind of like customized to the inhabitants like the teething like characters that live there the uh tentacle monster people that live there um the the specters that live there and, and building this out like how does it look um started off with i'm starting off now with a with a map of, of old quark space to kind of show like the history and build more lore on that um, which was another thing people created because they're just like, okay, what, what, what's, how did this all come to being? You know, what's the lore of all this? And that was actually an oversight on my part because of time, but it also brought in like, oh, there's a lot of great stuff that I could, I could play around with this. And thanks to one user, um, and a good friend of mine, uh, there's this horrible, scary candy corn avatar that we use that was default in hubs. And we, we had a blast with it. And because people loved that candy corn player so much, I had him come back for a couple of different test runs because he he's a amazing writer. 
amazing DM and a really great world builder. So his experience in D&D and as a, as a game tester and as a, as a game writer um, brought a lot of great insight. Um, so when I brought that, people were like, oh, yeah, is there like a candy corn race in here? And I was like, yes, yeah, there is. And we, we made an entire lore, and I've been back and forth with him. Um, I, I want to promote him. He's, 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 a, he's, a, he's a fantastic writer and a fantastic DM. His name is Sergio, Sergio Salazar. Uh, no, Salonzo. Um, I, I don't know why he said Salazar. Um, but he's a fantastic writer, fantastic DM, and I have the absolute pleasure of being able to participate in some of his of his uh of his games and being able to um just just hang out and be able to pick his brain and get some input um and again his name is sergio solorzano and he's he's writing on uh, video games um for his work currently fantastic dude um if you're if you're looking for a writer like definitely um, shoot me a message at joshuaindesign.com and I would love to make that introduction for you. Um, so we, we kind of worked together to make like a, a joking lore about this candy corn race. And this, this race is kind of hidden away in some magical forest because the lore is, while they, they were created as, um, as a race to kind of bring and incite people with, with happiness and fashion, um, because they were physically sweet uh, other races began to eat them and in fear of being wiped out due to hunger and sweet cravings they hid themselves away but um, player characters will be able to find them in a later iteration as we continue to build out the world of corkspace one of the other things that um got got slammed was the interactivity in this mvp and that mvp um, you know, being built just as something that was foundational and was looking for user feedback really brought out a lot of good um, criticism. And one of it was, well, we want to be able to interact with some of the elements. We want to see, you know, we want to rip off posters. We want to like be able to push things over. We want to be able to like even tag on stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. So one of the reasons tagging came up was because we, we have a couple rogue-like characters that like to play very rogue-like. And in hubs, you have the ability to use a marker. So for the first couple iterations, um, I didn't have the marker enabled. But in a, in a later playtest, um, I had oops, my roommate and my cat. Um, in a later playtest, I enabled the marker, and some people were having fun and being able to scribble on some of the on some of the surfaces, send notes to each other, and and so forth. And it it really kind of made made fun because in the world in that one of the low iteration levels um there is graffiti on some of the places it kind of gives some character and gives some kind of like vibes to the city that it is a very urban kind of space it has a certain kind of culture um and these are very they made use of like memes and so forth and people really loved it and some people wanted to kind of do their own tags um on there and it, it was a very interesting, you know, um, concept to have people say that they wanted to do that. So that's something that I'm going to be look forward to keeping in some way to kind of like leave your own mark in the in workspace. 
And I think that's going to be kind of fun. And that might even allow for certain mini games uh, for later iterations when I look start looking at multiplayer. Um, so now I kind of want to go over some of some of the successes of Quirkspace. And I'm trying to keep this kind of just within time because there's a lot of failures and there's a lot of successes. Um, but ultimately, this framework really was to kind of get a lot of user feedback and see what was necessary for this for this this user segment in order to help ensure that they were successful and feedback a lot I got and in bunches uh, that was just com- completely grammatically incorrect um, but this podcast is very raw and organic so I'm not going to edit that out anyways the one of the big things that came out was the love of having an avatar and that avatar kind of being being differentiated through everything part of the failure of that though was that it wasn't yet customizable um, because we were just kind of going with the base resources in hubs but hubs provided a lot of different options and people loved it and they liked the idea of being able to kind of be different from the natives and kind of be like yeah they're acknowledged that these are people that got isekai'd into this world um, which is part of the story plot isekai is a genre um, in japanese animation in which a user um, or which a character dies and is sent to this other fantastic or sci-fi magical world um, and they become like um, able to kind of become this hero or something and there's also been antagonizing ones like konosuba in which everything goes wrong but it's not necessarily what they what they thought it to be um so in this the story of Quarkspace, they they also really love the idea of isekai you're on this world where you're making minimum wage you're trudging through life and then you get the second chance to really kind of like bring yourself into prominence through cosplay um but one of the, the failings there was that they didn't feel that cosplay was um, super niche in every aspect. So we're going to be I'm going to be tying that in. And I sometimes I say we're because or we were <laughs> we because I, I work a lot with the community. I got a lot of community input and I see this as a kind of co-creation with the community. Um, and on that note. I want to give a shout out to all of the cosplayers that have been so wonderful in giving feedback, test playing the game, um, allowing, giving me the opportunity to interview them and so forth. Um, I want to give out a shout, shout out to Dust Bunny. I want to give a shout out to Kim Cosplay. I want to give out a shout out to Azayaka Cosplay for just being wonderful and, and doing so much for me. They are fantastic cosplayers. They are amazing, and they're, they've just been a great help. There's also a, a, more cosplayers that I need to attribute, um, but due to time restrictions, we, I, I wouldn't be able to, um, to name all of them right off the bat. However, any cosplayer that has helped me or anyone that's been a part of this, I want to make... Um, I want to make sure that I give you something that when Quarkspace is released in the Unity platform, yeah, I went ahead and gave it away, um, that you guys get a free copy of this game. 
as a thank you for all your help um, and that I could pay homage to you and highlight your cosplay careers for all your fantastic input and all of your your great, great content that you create on a daily basis as industry leaders and, and cosplayers. So there will be more centralization on, on cosplay in the later iterations of Quirkspace. Now, the next thing is music. And I love music in video games. Final Fantasy fourteen is kind of this, like, I have the entire soundtrack on, on YouTube. Um, I listen to um, covers on Spotify and... Sometimes when I'm just like working, it's it's a huge part of my of my kind of design process. To just listen to this inspirational music and be like really engaged in there. And I know I I've transitioned over to WoW as of lately, which is also a very great game and it's it has a huge quality of life. But for me, I believe that there is something very powerful about Final Fantasy XIV and the way that it appeals to aesthetics, the way it appeals to certain. Um, is it the the f- storytelling structure of what is it can the it's a four-part storytelling structure where you have basically the same kind of things as the three three structure but before the the final conclusion you have this twist that changes everything else up and the way that final fantasy 14 really focuses on the relationships to character before just jumping into just like okay this is just a giant war we're just going to be fighting this and that's it um and there there's critique to have on there you know into some of the successes and some of the things that work and don't work but i love it because i feel that there is such a a connection with some of these characters that drags you into the immersion of that world through storytelling and you know, WoW is a different aspect. It's a very Western-style uh, game in which it's kind of focusing on the things that are occurring, the larger things that are occurring on hand. So in Final Fantasy XIV, you'll, you'll get connected to Hashifant. You'll get connected to, uh, what is it, um, the Crystal Monarch. You'll get connected to so many of these, like, characters that on a personal level that you just you you love them and when something happens it hurts and wow on the other hand you're kind of immersed in this very epic very kind of like large scale it's like you know there's like this war going on you're this this hero that's coming up and you're part of a series of like you know people that have been drafted or are highly skilled and highly powerful and have worked their way up here but there's not kind of like the same relationship building with some of the, the characters and even some of the side characters. They kind of get not overlooked, but they're just kind of like they're there to kind of provide you like an advancement in the story. And that's not bad. It's just two different styles of storytelling. And I have an incredible soft spot for, for Final Fantasy because that was that was my childhood. Um, from an unbiased perspective, both go about it in a great way but in their own method. So getting back to on topic, um, one of the big things that, th- that this does is that I use a little bit of that Final Fantasy style of storytelling. 
while the big picture is still there, as you're going on these miniature quests with people, it's really about, or these, these NPCs, it's going to be really about kind of building a repertoire relationship with them so that you can either date them or build a friendship. And surprisingly, a large part of the community base was saying, we want to date the tentacle monster girl. We want to date, you know, this Cyclops tiefling receptionist. We want to date the bartender. And we want it to be that when we date them, it unlocks a route that we can apply cosplay as a way to kind of like, you know, service that that business. And I was like, wow, that's that's really interesting. All right, let's do it. Um, so at first I was kind of like, you want to date a tentacle monster? And I was like, oh, and I was like, all right, you guys are the community. And I, as a designer, am here to serve. And I'm actually kind of down with that. So wait, it's, it's going to be, you know, PG. It's not going to be like, you know, some like X-rated game. But there is going to be a dating system in there. Um, and this input has come from both male and female and a couple of non-binary uh, that come in there and which is players um, that come in there and like have, have provided this feedback. And it's, it's kind of cool um, to see how, like how they really wanted that. And I was like, great, like, you know, I could do that with you guys. So one of the, the other successes of this was the ability to access this on your phone. Some players have a, have a very busy schedule and sometimes, you know, with everything that's going on, they've had to make cuts to the quality of the internet service and they've been able to kind of play on a mobile device and they're like, oh that's great like i could get on here or i'm going to be driving real quick but i want to i want to play and i want to like be part of the group and they can you know be on this trip while someone else is driving hopefully not them um and you know through voice and through video be able to kind of share and like talk and participate and it's like wow um so the next part is where am I going to take this? And this part is going to take a while. Like I'm, I'm one person. I have zero budget. Um, and I'm working on creating a, a business model um, using a freemium business um, because I want to, I, again, like I, I really want to have people get as much value as they can for their needs and be a contributor to their success as a designer. But at the same time, I need to be realistic and be like, I got bills to pay, I got things I need to do, um, and being able to develop further aspects of this and being able to, to cater to your needs is gonna require some funding so that I, I could have the access to all the resources that I need to go forth. So shortly from now, I'll be setting up a Patreon that will involve special episodes of this podcast um, and special um, was it uh, prizes that people will be able to get on. I'm still in the midst of building all that out. So I am looking for either part-time or full-time work to kind of help supplement all that while I, while I do this. Um, but ultimately this is going to be like, you know, going to take a, a couple of months to uh, a couple of years to kind of release and have a fully like, cohesive second iteration out or i should say this is like the third iteration out because um probably fourth because like i've there's been changed so many changes in um quirkspace while hosted on hubs and i love hubs i really wanted to keep it 
as a platform, but there are certain limitations with it <clears throat> that I would for interactivity as of right now. However, if you have not tried Hubs, I would definitely say you should go check it out. It's a tool that could help you for businesses, for meetings, for events, for hosting things, uh, for, for building out worlds, for testing out level designs. And I will continue to use Hubs for kind of getting input on levels that I design. And that might be kind of a, a prize that I also put in there. Um, again, like I'm still working all this out. It's in very early stages, but I'm going to be transitioning Quarkspace to Unity. Um, I love Unity for all of the assets it has. Um, I love that it works really great for mobile, um, has um, incorporation with hubs for WebXR, has built-in WebXR components, um, and it's just really easy to use right out the bat. I also dabble in Unreal and I'm still learning it, but I'm, I'm much more versed in Unity due to grad school. Um, so while I'm while I'm learning Unreal Engine, um, I also don't believe that it's it's the best case for this because I feel it would be um, a bit of the waste that I wouldn't be using all the features in an engine because I'm looking for to make something that's going to be low poly and accessible. And in Unity, I feel that that really works with my objectives a, lot, a little bit more. Both are really good. I'm not going to shun either. And I say that um, as a red mage, being able to dabble in, in all of these engines, these are my tools. Um, so moving forward with Unity, um, I'm looking to kind of have some, some levels out. I'm going to be sharing that um, progress on my Instagram at Joshua in Design um, and really kind of keeping up to the progress with all that. Um, some people I would like to thank for all of their input and help and um, feedback are a couple of Twitch streamers. Um, so prepare prepare yourselves to check out um, their stuff. I'd first like to thank Dr. Mikachu. She has provided a lot of insight uh, to accessibility in gaming. Um, I followed her streams and she does a lot of really cool stuff to break down uh, these game designs and level designs and how to kind of go about it. And on her Discord channel, our server, um, she has a lot of resources for jobs and opportunities and things to help out designers where we can ask questions for each other, you know, get input. And it's just been an amazing, phenomenal um, experience um, being a part of her community. And Dr. Dr. Mikachu, who is a PhD, is super kind, super amazing, and just, just great. Um, I would also like to give a shout out to Funky Monk um, 420 um, and for let and Parkour Ninja Kitty. Uh, these are all streamers on Twitch who are game developers and working together in game jams and have you know, given me like props for kind of looking into this um, and have allowed me to also kind of like watch their streams and see how they go about stuff. And um, they are incredibly talented game designers um, super cool people and talented, talented artists. Um, so I definitely say check them out. Um, I will make sure to kind of give a shout out to them on my Instagram um, to promote them and their streams and their social media because they are they are just fantastic. Um, and to wrap up this episode because we're going over an hour and I'm sure people are, are just kind of dying to be like, get it over with, man. Um, I, I want to talk about um, just kind of like what this 
what this goal is with Quarkspace. So I will be working on a series of other projects um, in season two um, because one, I'm, I'm a madman, and two, as a designer, that's my mission to go out and solve these very large problems and help contribute to these communities that are underrepresented, communities that need help, need resources, need engagement, and also systems that need to be revamped and may not always have the resources or immediate partnerships to do so. And maybe sometimes even the technical skills. So I'm looking at, you know, like a bunch of different projects as to help with, um, you know, mental health, help, um, help with increasing young voters, helping kind of like game designers in Mexico, um, you know, really kind of like establish themselves because that's been an, another kind of big problem. Uh, and I'll get into that more later as we break into season two. But I'm I'm dabbling in a bunch of different stuff and I'm looking at ways that I can jump into different projects and make a series of MVPs so that if there is success and there is support, I can bring stuff along. And another thing that I'm gonna continue on while developing Quarkspace further is really kind of pushing the boundaries of game-based learning and games as critical technologies. And games will not always mean video games. Games will mean sometimes like some kind of card game. Sometimes it'll be, you know, a tabletop game. Sometimes it'll just be a word game. Sometimes it'll be just a form of play in space with, with resources that you have around you. Games are so flexible in the way that you're able to do that, that it's important to understand and open your mind up to the potential that these technologies have. So that's my spiel. I thank you guys for, for coming in. And I thank you guys for listening. I thank you guys for being so great about the hiatus. And I also thank you all for taking your time to listen to this podcast and really kind of get along with me and journey with me through this. So moving forward, this is going to be a lot more structured and in addressing each phase of the process. Um, again, it's just kind of been slammed because of grad school and it may be a little tighter again because of work, but I'm going to be looking to be releasing everything again bi-weekly. Um, I'm trying to get these episodes for Quarkspace out back to back so that it addresses everything. And if you're interested in some of the research that I have um, done for Quarkspace and would like to um, know more about my findings, um, you can go ahead and hit me up via email at joshuaiandesign at gmail.com. That is joshuaiandesign. Ian is spelled I-A-N at gmail.com. And I'd be more than happy to share any information that I found, um, do a Zoom meeting or meet you in VR, which would be a much more fun experience for both of us. And really kind of show what I've what I've discovered, research findings and things that um, have kind of blocked um, or not worked out so that you can kind of speed run your way with your projects. Um, this is the Red Mage. Stay cool, stay nerdy. The Red Mage is out. Oh,